It's overtime. We're past the 90th minute mark, anxiously waiting for a goal, for a play, for something to occur, but as the whistle rings in our ears and the referee calls the match to a close, the ball stops rolling, the curtains are drawn, the spectacle ends, and we move on. There will always be another final some other day, but what if I told you that there's more? Every football club has a storied past, rusted trophies and glories of yesteryear, yet that's not the story I want to tell. This isn't a story of heroes or villains, of last-minute goals and miraculous turnarounds. This is Undertime, the story of First Division soccer in fascist Spain. Oh yes, I know her, this woman, I know her. She came by train, a very long train. She traveled for many days and for many nights, and this woman woke in the night and she was alone. And she looked around her, and she began running down the hallways of the train from one car to another, and she was alone. She looked for the ticket taker, the trainman, an employee, a hobo traveling hidden under the seat, and she was alone. And she asked the darkness, and she was alone. And she asked who the conductor was who was moving this horrible train, and no one answered her, because she was alone. Because she was alone. This poem you just heard belongs to Leopoldo Panero an infamous Spanish poet from war-torn Spain. He described Spain as a desolate train with no discernible destiny or destination, which fits this show quite aptly. Very rarely do we realize where we end up in life, let alone the reasons why. So, let's figure out where we're heading. I'm as much as a passenger in this ghost train as you are, my friend. This train stops at every major station, Barcelona, Madrid, Bilbao, Sevilla, and many more. Hopefully you'll enjoy this solitary ride as much as I do. Hi. Hey there. Glad to see you back. It's good to see a familiar face. I hope you enjoyed our previous trip to Barcelona. I know, it's somewhat sad to leave it behind, but we might actually go back in the near future, but right now we should really focus on our next stop, Bilbao. It's the largest city in the Basque region of Spain, and it has quite a storied past in regards to football. Anywho, since we still have a bit of a trek to get there, maybe I can give some sort of context or clarification to pass the time. History is a bit of a tricky thing. It's only factual insofar as to how we decide to formulate it or frame it. And I'm not infallible either. If anything, I'm a tour guide who's learning as he goes, so there will be some mistakes here or there. I'd like to clarify that I did get a few things wrong in our brief visit to Barcelona. For one, in one occasion I said that the war started in 1939 when it actually started in 1936. Likewise, I, I got somewhat confused as to the naming of teams. It was during the Spanish Republic that associations to the monarchy were prohibited, so teams like Real Madrid and Real Sociedad had to change their crests and names. So Real Madrid became Madrid Club de Fútbol, and Real Sociedad became Donostia Fútbol Club. Once the Franco regime began, teams with associations to royalty were allowed to return to their former names and symbols. However, what was prohibited were anglicized names. So anything like Fútbol Club Barcelona or Athletic de Bilbao. The former became Barcelona Club de Fútbol, and Athletic de Bilbao became Atlético de Bilbao. Now that we have that out of the way, we can turn our conversation to, well, soccer in general. In our previous trip, I felt like I had to summarize Spanish history up to that point quite a bit. So, I couldn't really go into much depth as to the personal history of the club. However, that won't be really necessary this time. Yet, we should still understand the general landscape of soccer before the war began. The Spanish National League, did not begin until 1929. 
three years before the inception of the Second Republic. Before 1929, the only official national tournament was the Copa Nacional, the equivalent of today's Copa del Rey, the King's Cup. This didn't mean that soccer wasn't being played. Regional tournaments and leagues were still aplenty. Likewise, friendly matches both regionally and internationally were still being held. If anything, these matches were held much more frequently, as the King's Cup was only played by a small handful of teams, leaving the rest of the season open for regional and friendly matches. The King's Cup officially began in 1903. However, it should be noted that the first organized national cup was in 1902, Copa de la Coronación, the Coronation Cup, made in honor of King Alfonso XIII reaching adulthood. In fact, Athletic de Bilbao, the team we will be visiting today, won that cup. There are many theories as to how football came to this region. The main one stems from British importation. It is believed that steelworkers from Britain and foreign students brought this newfound sport to the region. In fact, Basque football is said to be reminiscent of the English style, aggressive, swift, and direct. Many teams of the region have this British influence in their names, hence why Athletic de Bilbao has an anglicized name. The rest is, well, history. The Basque country has always been famous for its soccer, even to this day. And we'll get a little into that as we tour the city. The National League as we know it today began in 1929, starting in February and ending in June of the same year. However, this wasn't the first attempt to hold a national soccer league. The idea to form a national league began in 1926, when the professional football clubs met and decided to form a national association modeled after the British version. As soccer was becoming more and more of a profitable industry, the clubs sought to make a professional national league. In essence, more competitiveness would lead to higher profits and more fans. However, the clubs in 1928 could not come to an agreement as to who was going to compete in this theoretical league. The clubs fell within two main camps, the Minimalists and the Maximalists. The former wanted a league composed solely of those teams that had won the King's Cup up to that point in time. These being Athletic de Bilbao, Real Madrid, Fútbol Club Barcelona, Real Sociedad, Real Unión, and Arenas Club de Guecho. The latter wanted a more open league. These being Real Club Deportivo Español, Atlético de Madrid, Sporting de Gijón, Sevilla Club de Fútbol, Iberia Sport Club, Racing de Santander, Valencia, Real Murcia, Celta de Vigo, Club Atlético Sasuna, and Deportivo de Alavés. Since neither of these camps could reach an agreement, in very Spanish fashion, they simply decided to do things their own way. The minimalists formed their own league in 1928, known as the Torneo de Campeones, the Champions Tournament, and the maximalists formed La Liga Máxima, the Maximum League. These two leagues ran in parallel, and teams still competed in regional tournaments and friendly matches. Neither of these leagues ever finished, many teams either being added late to their respective leagues or missing initial matches due to poor management. There is a lot of unverified information as to which matches were official or not. The whole thing was again in very Spanish fashion, quite a mess. After the failure to form a league in 1928, the clubs and the federation finally reached an agreement. Nowadays, the league is composed of 20 teams. However, in its inception, there were only 10. The clubs were chosen on the following basis. The six that had won the King's Cup were automatically placed in first division. So were the three finalists that had not been able to win. Since this was an odd number, a mini-league was held prior to determine who would get the 10th spot. The founders of the first ever league are as follows. Arenas Club de Guecho, Athletic de Bilbao, Atlético de Madrid, Fútbol Club Barcelona, Club Deportivo Europa, Real Club Deportivo Español, Real Sociedad, Real Unión, Real Madrid, and the Racing de Santander. Those in the mini-league that did not get the 10th spot were placed in second division. These were Real Betis, Celta de Vigo, Deportivo de Alavés, Deportivo de la Coruña, Iberia Sport Club, Real Oviedo, Racing Club de Madrid, Sevilla, and Valencia. So, 
now we have an idea as to how the league was formed, and a total of eight iterations were held between 1929 and 1936, six of which were held during the Republic. As you may have surmised, the National League was cancelled and postponed until the war ended. The inaugural league was won by Football Club Barcelona on the last round. Real Madrid placed second, and Athletic de Bilbao placed third. The early days of the league were completely dominated by Athletic, winning a total of four leagues out of the eight that were held before the war. Real Madrid won two, and Real Betis and Football Club Barcelona won once each. In its early days, the league evolved with minor changes as to how relegations and promotions would work, changing from relegation playoffs to direct relegations and promotions. Likewise, the league expanded for the 1934-1935 season, where Real Betis won the league for the first and only time in their history. The league was supposed to initially hold 14 teams, However, this was later reduced to 12. The last league to be played under the Republic was the 1935-1936 season, which ended three months before the outbreak of the war. It's somewhat fitting for us that Athletic de Bilbao was the last team to win a title under the short-lived Republic. They wouldn't celebrate this title again until 1956. It seems we're actually here, so how about we exit and um, see what Bilbao holds for us? This football cathedral is called San Mames named after the saint and martyr that was fed to the lions. A bit of a grim name to baptize your stadium after, but who am I to judge? Even the nicknames for the team come from the saint. The players are generally referred to as los leones, the lions, or rojiblancos, the red whites due to their titular colors. These walls have had quite the number of renovations. Construction began on the 20th of January and ended on the 21st of August of 1913, sporting a humble 7,000 seats. In its zenith, it held over 39,000 spectators until it was demolished in 2013 to make way for the new Samamis. This stadium has seen everything Spanish soccer has had to offer. It's the only stadium in Spanish league history that has been active since the league began in 1929. 99 years of Spanish soccer are held within these walls, and if you take care to listen, you'll hear the cries of ecstasy and sorrow of titles held and titles lost, you can still hear the chants and screams of years past reverberate. Commonly referred to as Athletic, the club was founded in 1898 and is one of the three Clásicos, the three clubs that have never been relegated to second division, the other two being Real Madrid and Fútbol Club Barcelona. Likewise, it's one of the four professional clubs in first division that isn't privately owned, the other three being Real Madrid, Barcelona, and Osasuna, meaning the club is beholden to its members. They are also famous for their cantera policy, which started in 1912. The club only fields players born in the Euskal Herria region, but we'll get into that later. Athletic is the fourth team with most league titles, sporting a total of eight, the most recent one being in the 1983-84 season. Likewise, during the 20th century, they were the club with most King's Cup titles, a total of 23. 24 if you count the Coronation Cup, until they were surpassed by Fútbol Club Barcelona in 2009. They're also the third club with the largest number of overall titles, a total of 34, and still hold the record for the largest goal differential in a single match, defeating Barcelona 12-1 in the 1930-1931 season. Outside of Spain, Atlético de Bilbao has reached two UEFA finals. However, they still have not won a single title outside of Spanish territory. The current stadium is Nusa Mames, and it holds over 50,000 spectators, and will be hosting several matches for the 2020 European Nations Cup. Athletic is also the third club that has provided the most players for the national squad, among them historical players like Telmo Zarra and Rafael Moreno Aranzadi, known as Pichichi. In fact, Telmo Zarra held the record for most goals in first division, scoring a total of 251 until 2014, only being overcome by active legends 
Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. While Athletic may not have the same international renown as Barcelona or Real Madrid, it would be remiss to ignore their importance for Spanish football. So, let's take a quick detour to where this team originated. Luckily, it's a short train trip away. While we get there, now might be a good time to talk about Bilbao's Cantera policy. You might be wondering what that means exactly, and, and it might sound somewhat xenophobic if you don't understand the origin of this policy. This policy is quite strict. Essentially, it limits the amount of players that can be fielded for Athletic. When the policy was first implemented in 1912, in order to play for the club, you had to not only be Basque, but so did your previous two generations. This meant both mother and father and both sets of grandparents had to be of Basque origin and have Basque names. They didn't necessarily have to be from Vizcaya or the Basque region itself, rather from the larger ideological region of Euskal Herria. This denomination is not a strictly geographical space. You won't find it on any official map. Rather, it delineates areas of Basque descent or historical importance, at least from the point of view of Basque nationalism. This includes places outside of the official Basque region, such as Navarra, parts of Cantabria and Burgos, and even parts of southern France, such as Baja Navarra, Laborte, Sola, and Esquiule. Sure. This might sound like a bit of a cop-out, but we're still talking about a minuscule region compared to other places. All of these places combined, nowadays, don't even reach 5 million people. The people that match all these necessary prerequisites would surely lower the potential number even more. And if we take into account how hard it is to even make it to the higher categories of football, let alone a position in the starting 11 of any given team in first division, we're talking really stacked odds. Even so, Athletic has never been relegated and even dominated the first division flight in the early years of its inception. The talent that is brewed in this tiny region is colossal. Nowadays, this policy doesn't technically exist, or at least not in the same dogmatic manner. The grandparent rule isn't enforced, and players born outside of the region, or even the country itself, can still be players, assuming they come from Basque descendancy. An example of this would be Fernanda Morevieta, who was born in Venezuela, but was raised by his Basque parents in Bilbao. Likewise, there are instances of no descendancy at all. Iñaki Williams, the current striker for the club as of the date of publication, has no direct or indirect connection to the region. His parents are both from Ghana, however he happened to be born in the Basque region, allowing him to become a player for the club. About 99% of athletic players are born and raised within a two-hour drive of the stadium, an overwhelming majority within 30 minutes. Within the region, this policy is seen as a way to introduce and celebrate the best talent of the region. From outside Euskadi, it is sometimes seen as an act of defiance against centralist Spain, more so when you add the connotations of independence and secessionism. The policy itself did not emerge as an indicator or protector of racial purity. These connotations would come later during the regime. It really baffles the mind that this club pooling talent from such a small region could remain in first division and actually win. More so with a state of modern soccer with multi-million transfer signings from all over the world. Let's hop off here and take a look at where Athletic began, and potentially the style of the national squad for many years to come. As I mentioned in passing before, some historians claim that soccer reached the Bithkayan shores somewhere around 1892. British steelworkers would be seen playing in the racetrack of Lamiaco. In fact, by 1894, it was common tradition to see the Brits playing in the racetrack, and soon enough, many Bilbaínos began playing with them as well. On the 4th of May of 1894, 
the locals challenged the Brits to a match. This event garnered much attention from the locals in town. Sadly, the British won by five goals, later inviting the losing side to grilled chicken as a consolation or gesture of good faith. At least, that's how the story goes. Little after this, youngsters from the Thamakois Gymnasium of Bilbao, fans of this new sport, began to play in the Lamiaco racetrack as well. Among these were Jose Juanito Astorquia, Alejandro Acha, the Iraola Goitia brothers, Eduardo Montejo, Enrique Goiri, and Luis Marquez. From these matches, in 1898, came the idea to form a soccer club, which they named Athletic de Bilbao. By the end of the year 1900, another club was formed in the city, Bilbao Football Club. On the 5th of September of 1901, Athletic Club was legally formed, despite them already playing with this moniker. Luis Marquez became their first president, and the club began with 33 members. Bilbao Football Club and Athletic played numerous matches in Lamiaco, increasing their rivalry. In fact, on the 19th of January of 1902, the first ever paid match was played between them, for a measly 30 cents. However, by March of 1903, Bilbao Football Club was dissolved, its members being transferred over to Athletic. Athletic, in a sense, is a child of many mothers, more so when we see how the club competed in the National Cup, nowadays known as the King's Cup. In 1902, the Coronation Cup was held and was won by Vizcaya. You might have heard this name before on our trip to Barcelona. In order for Athletic to compete, teams in the region had to pool resources and players. Between 1902 and 1907, Athletic and other teams such as Bilbao Football Club, Unión de Vizcaya, and the subsidiary Athletic Club de Madrid would join to form Vizcaya. The last time Vizcaya ever played was in 1907, in the King's Cup final against Real Madrid, where Vizcaya lost 1-0. There was an attempt to form another Vizcaya squad for the 1909 Cup, Athletic attempting to join with Club Ciclista de San Sebastián, the predecessor of Real Sociedad. However, this plan fell through after a friendly match between them with much animosity. In fact, Club Ciclista de San Sebastián would go on to win the King's Cup that year, their first ever cup title. The origins of Athletic are quite interesting, and the diaspora of fans and players can be seen throughout Spain, both in the form of peñas and actual football clubs. The best example of this would be Atlético de Madrid, who in the last few years has become a staple of Spanish football both nationally and internationally. However, what many might not know, or perhaps you might have been confused by previous mentions of them, was that they technically were a subsidiary of Athletic. In fact, Atlético de Madrid used to be called Athletic Club de Madrid. After Athletic won the King's Cup in 1903, Basque students in Madrid decided to form Athletic Club de Madrid. While it served as a separate entity, having a different president and general assembly, they were still considered a subsidiary of Athletic and couldn't compete against them in the same competitions. It wasn't until 1921 when the subsidiary officially detached itself from the club. They even played a Copa del Rey final that year, which Athletic won by 4-1. to one. Atletico de Madrid have always shown great respect towards Athletic, since they technically are their founders. Athletic's reach grasps and touches the hearts of Spaniards all across the peninsula, and their exponential growth inexorably pushed them away from Lamiaco towards Bilbao's center. By 1909, the Lamiaco field could not sustain the club anymore. The following year, they began playing in the field of Josaleta, where for the first time they wore their titular colors, white and red, against Sporting de Irún. However, Josaleta was not particularly comfortable for Athletic due to the distance between Neguri and Bilbao. In a meeting in 1912, it was decided that a new stadium would be built close to the Asylum of San Mamés, near the Gran Vía Bilbaína. The stadium was inaugurated on the 21st of August, with a friendly match held against the Londonite team Shepherds Bush and the Basque team Racing de Irún. Between 1903 and 1936, Athletic won a total of 13 King's Cups, about 40% of all cups held at the time, and had won a total of four leagues out of eight. 
To claim Athletic wasn't the king of Spanish soccer at the time would be, well, willful ignorance. The style of football Athletic professed would be coined as La Furia, the Fury, because of their direct style of play. Their players were described as towering and athletic, scoring a good portion of their goals from direct headers. Yet, Athletic, much like any other Spaniard at the time, would come to terms with a very different reality, a very different Spain. The glories of yesteryear were buried, their players became soldiers, and many did not return. Athletic, much like Football Club Barcelona, is an interesting case study of conflicting identities. On the one hand, Athletic's associations to regionalism cannot be denied. On the other, the regime played quite a significant role in shaping Athletic's image. The regime had no issue in repurposing imagery or symbols to suit their needs. As far as the impact of the war itself, Athletic played a significant role in terms of diplomacy for the Republican side. At the outbreak of the war, 8 out of the 12 teams that participated in 1st Division at the time were within Republican zones. However, Athletic and Racing de Santander found their cities surrounded by nationalist forces. And the international dimension of soccer is also quite a tricky thing, more so when we consider how this was on the mind of both the Republican and national sides during the war. You might ask, why the hell would anyone direct precious and finite resources towards such a fruitless endeavor? And you would be right. At first glance, it seems rather banal, yet the answer is more Machiavellian than that. Considerably more. I mentioned before on our trip to Barcelona that the regime had a hand in every aspect of Spanish life. If something could be controlled, it should be controlled. So let's take a brief detour to understand the homologation of Spanish football internationally, because Athletic played a role in this as well. As you may have surmised, Spain as a national squad playing for the upcoming 1938 World Cup was a pipe dream at best and wishful thinking at worst. Since players found themselves separated within the two camps, many of them still on vacation when the war erupted, playing international matches, let alone a World Cup in the following years, was an impossibility. Nevertheless, there's an interesting case occurring in Bilbao. As I mentioned before, Barca and other teams of Catalonia sent players as envoys to play outside of Spain during the war. This was a method of alternative diplomacy, to show the world what was occurring in Spain. Likewise, it served as a way to secure funding for both the team and the war effort. The case for Athletic was similar, however, it encompassed the whole Basque region. A team composed of the best Basque players, mostly Athletic players, were sent abroad to represent the region and the Republican cause during the war. This was a highly rated team. Six of the players present in the squad had played for the Spanish national side during the 1934 World Cup. The team was named Euskadi and wore the colors of the Icurriña, the Basque flag composed of red, white, and green. This is an odd case, seeing as how the Basque region was mostly under nationalist leadership at the time, and the team itself was sent abroad by the exiled government waiting in Paris. They voyaged through Europe, playing against a variety of national teams and soccer clubs. They played their first exhibition match in Paris on the 26th of April of 1937, the same day of the bombing of Guernica. They played several matches in France, Czechoslovakia, and Poland, yet not without issues from FIFA, which had banned FIFA-affiliated countries from playing against any Spanish teams. Even so, many clubs and national squads sympathized with the Republican cause and ignored any FIFA directives. By the time Bilbao had fallen to the nationalist forces on the 19th of June of 1937, Euskadi found itself in Moscow, for most players, this meant they had no way of going back home. Euskadi continued its trip in Scandinavia, ending in France. The international success of Euskadi is not to be understated. This little team beat many full-fledged national sides, and did not lose a single match in their Russian tour except for one match against Spartak Moscow. 
Allegedly, the Soviet Union was not particularly happy with the Basque team gallivanting across Russia beating their clubs. Some sources claim they pooled players from all over the country to improve the Moscovite team. Even so, the international success of Euskadi was a problem for Francoist propaganda. There is a supposed letter that promised political amnesty to the players if they returned to Spain, however, this letter has never surfaced. Two players from the squad left the tour once Euskadi returned to France. The tour continued in Latin America, Euskadi arriving in Mexico in the autumn of 1937. FIFA had given permission to the squad to play both national and club matches. Euskadi played a total of nine matches in the capital and one in Guadalajara. They crossed to Cuba after that. They ran into more issues with FIFA here. FIFA prohibiting any national matches between Euskadi and the Cuban national side. The same occurred in Argentina, where Euskadi did not play a single official match in their three-month stay. Having run out of funds, and having no way of raising them either, Argentinian clubs pitched in and funded their subsequent trip to Chile. After a brief stint in Chile and Cuba once again, Euskadi found itself back in Mexico. They even competed in the Mexican League for the 1938-1939 season under the name Club Deportivo Euskadi, where they placed second. As the civil war came to an end, the players found themselves virtually nationless, at least in terms of who they were representing. Many of the players stayed in Mexico, and others found football contracts in Argentina. You might be confused as to this brief international sidetrack, yet it shows the extent to which these 19 players were willing to go to continue fighting for the Republican side. Football was more than just what put bread on the table. It served a strict political and ideological purpose. Even after their homes had fallen to nationalist forces, they continued to kick the ball. Almost out of spite. Well, I've mentioned FIFA quite a bit here, and you might be wondering exactly what they had to do with the Civil War, and you'd be surprised that they had a hand in it too, though mostly by accident. Why do you think FIFA was so keen on not having Euskadi play national squads? Sure, you might have your own judgments and presuppositions about FIFA as an organization, yet at this point in time, they were surprisingly partial, something other organizations such as the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, were not particularly keen on being. Again, before returning to Bilbao, let's understand this facet of Francoism in regards to foreign diplomacy, because this is actually quite important. While this might not have occurred in Bilbao, it pertains to the Basque region, specifically in the neighboring city of San Sebastián, or Donostia. On the 13th of August of 1937, FIFA received a letter from the Nationalist Football Federation established in San Sebastián, claiming to be the legitimate committee. You might feel solace in knowing you're not the only one scratching your head, as FIFA was already in contact with the Republican Federation in Barcelona. The FIFA president at the time chose not to answer so as not to imply recognition. It is important to note that FIFA only allows one national association per country. In perfect Swiss fashion, FIFA stopped answering either association, biding their time until the next executive committee meeting in November of that year. Both parties were invited to this meeting, as long as they formally sent a letter beforehand stating their points before their arrival. These are readily accessible in FIFA's archives and show how both sides attempted to achieve national recognition as the sole representation of authentic Spain, whatever the hell that means. The Republican side claimed to be the legitimate association, stating their recognition from the Republican government, no surprise there, and the League of Nations. They proposed four points for a solution. One. Due to the territorial separation, no national competition could be held. All regional federations would play games within their borders. Two, since there was an ongoing war, it would be impossible to form a single team representing Spain as a whole. Therefore, no international matches should be played until these circumstances were remediated. Three, games between regional teams or cities and Spanish and foreign teams should still be allowed. 
Four, to organize all current affairs of Spanish football, a delegation by Republicans should be formed in Paris to represent Spain. The real important point here is the last one. It essentially gave de facto legitimacy to the Republicans by becoming the only face of the association. The Nationalists, unsurprisingly, accused the Republicans of mixing politics with football, something FIFA was not particularly happy about. Likewise, they characterized the Republicans as foreign and external powers, presenting the civil war as an internal struggle between themselves and Bolshevik invaders, rather than a war between Spaniards. They concluded that the Republican Association was illegitimate, as they had never been elected by a unified Spain. Obviously, any mention of a coup was omitted. The 6th of November of 1937 was a bizarre situation, to say the least. These two delegations met with the FIFA Executive Committee and basically denied any possibility of establishing a joint federation, let alone a national team. The nationalists argued that since they had a majority of sub-federations, 14 out of 18, and most of the soccer clubs also, 600 out of 800, under their controlled territories, they should be the only active association. It should be noted, however, that these clubs and sub-federations couldn't freely choose to be under the Francoist delegation. Obviously, this also wasn't mentioned. In an unprecedented case for FIFA, the executive committee decided to recognize both federations as legitimate, something that was against their own statutes. This was a terrible blow for the Republican side. By recognizing both associations, a sense of false equivalency was established. As to why FIFA came to this decision, it's hard to say. Even as a conservative association, it is plausible to believe they preferred to wash their hands in an apolitical sense. With nationalist Spain now allowed to play international and regional matches, the Francoist side achieved an international recognition of sorts, even if it wasn't strictly diplomatic. After receiving news of this FIFA decision, the Basque team abroad, Euskadi, decided to join the Mexican Football Association in October of 1938. This was, for all intents and purposes, their last resort, as both the Cuban and Argentine governments had denied their asylum. Football is much more than kicking a ball, my friend. That's perfectly evident by both the Euskadi squad and the struggle for legitimacy between the nationalist and republican associations. In a sense, by obtaining legitimacy from FIFA, both the republican and francoist sides could accrue prestige and international recognition through parallel channels, rather than through official diplomatic exchanges. This propagandistic element of soccer was already present during the war. In December of 1938, the first sport newspaper was published in San Sebastián, titled Marca. This included an interview with General José Moscardó, president of the Spanish Olympic Committee and head of the national sport delegation, both of these being Francoist. There was even a match between the Francoist national squad and Real Sociedad. The fact that Francoists would destine resources to form a national squad during the war shows that, from the very beginning, they wanted to use football as a propagandistic tool. Look, let's be clear, we shouldn't overestimate the importance of the sport, yet this clearly shows that international recognition was already in the game plan. It was a component of the Francoist strategy, barely a year into the war. Again, this isn't some odd obsession either side had with football. They dedicated precious time and resources to spin a narrative to foreign nations. This early on in the war, the Francoist side understood that football could be used as a tool for diplomacy. Even before the war had ended, the Francoist side envisioned the sport as a tool for political and ideological dissemination. On the 20th of June of 1943, Athletic beat Real Madrid in the final of the Copa del Generalísimo, the equivalent of the King's Cup. Zarra scored the only goal of the match in overtime, giving Athletic its 14th King's Cup. Athletic also won the league that year, their last league being won in the final year of the Republic. Athletic was still the most lauded team in Spain, 
having the most leagues and King's Cup titles. Hundreds flocked to the streets to celebrate. In the city center, athletic players joined the tumultuous crowds to sing and celebrate the title, as well as the sixth year of Bilbao's liberation. Once back home in Bilbao, the mayor proclaimed this event as, quote, an honor for Bilbao, but not out of regional vanity. This was the pride of being number one in everything, at the service of Spain and Franco. This event is no mistake, exception, or singularity. It was the rule of the 40s where Athletic had some of its best years. While they only won a single league in this decade, they added four King's Cups, three of them in a row, to their expanding trophy cabinet. Fascist salutes in San Mames were as common stance as titles. Much like what was occurring in Barcelona, as we've previously explored, Athletic was reconverted into a propagandistic instrument, as a tool to promote Francoist nationalism with a bit of a regional spin. Basque peoples were represented as a fundamental part of Spain, rather than their own separate thing. Athletic's victories were aligned with certain Basque elements of historical origin, presented as the supposed first Spanish peoples to arrive at the peninsula. The regime simply transfigured this idea to exalt the Spanish character of Bilbao rather than the regional one. In a sense, it reaffirmed Basque identity, positioning it towards the larger idea of Spanishness whilst distancing it away from the idea of Basqueness or regional separatism. A quick aside, Basque is one of the oldest languages in Europe. According to linguists, quote, it's the only pre-Indo-European language spoken in Europe today. The language was already in existence during the Bronze Age, some 2,000 years before the birth of Christ, when Indo-European tribes who were familiar with agriculture and use of the wheel began to move into Europe. So this idea of the Basque man as a proto-Spaniard or first Spaniard was transformed into something more useful for the regime. Rather than letting this theory be used as fuel for independence, regional identity, or secessionism, it was repurposed to present Basque peoples as fundamentally Spanish. Any formulation of nationhood is constructed, sociologically defined and socially determined. Nation, in a sense, is narration. It's a mixture of meta-narratives, of particular metaphors and historical events delineated in a precise fashion. These are then transmitted through texts, the press, novels, schools, gyms, and homes. As soccer became an element of the masses, so was the transmission of nationhood in the pitch, in this playing field. Certain myths or narratives are also present in the sport. Teams are said to have a literal national identity, which is later transmitted in terms of their playstyle, the way people reflect the character of their own nation, of their own people. Germans are said to be methodical players. Brazilians are said to be artistic, dancing and weaving through the pitch. You sort of get the gist of it. And we see this idea presented in Spanish football as well. At least that's what the regime was aiming for with Athletic. Ricardo Zamora, the famous Barcelona goalkeeper, who actually fought for the nationalist side, described the principal traits of Spanish football as Basque. Strength, enthusiasm, energy, virility, tactics based on long passes and direct plays. These were all authentic Basque characteristics that had now become part of the national soccer identity. The Fury, as Athletic had come to be described, became co-opted by the Spanish national squad, termed La Furia Roja, the Red Fury. The Franco regime laid out their plans to elevate the Spanish race. The ex-general José Moscardó instituted changes for the national squad, now wearing phalanges blue rather than the traditional red shirt. Likewise, the new Spanish anthem, Cara al Sol, was to be played before matches whilst players made fascist salutes. The beginning of the 40s showed a clear intention to turn stadiums into a sort of patriotic church. Athletic, much like Barcelona, found itself at a crossroads in terms of their identity. They had to de-anglicize their name, becoming Atlético de Bilbao. 
and the board of directors was filled with Falangist ex-generals and members. Censorship went so far as to getting rid of Anglicism in newspapers and radio transmissions. So terms like corner kick, amateur, or match, all of these used in Spanish as borrowed terms, were now banned. Ironic, considering the Roman fascist salute is not particularly Spanish, but then again, logic and fascism very rarely go hand in hand. We can see this further positioning of Basqueness as essentially Spanish in newspaper editorials. In January of 1939, the newspaper Marca published a study of Basque sports such as Pulsolaris. These reports included interviews, where they spun Basque sports as genuinely Spanish ones. Furthermore, several Marca editorials presented Athletic as the most glorious Spanish team at the time. Even the Falanges party, more so with the board of directors within the club itself, saw Athletic as the reincarnation of Spanish masculinity, virility, impetus, fury. Athletic gained favor with the regime as, at the time, they were the only team in first division with a cantera policy, a purely Spanish lineup. This policy, much like the regime would do with other symbols, was reframed, vampirized. This policy wasn't about regional pride anymore, it was about keeping Spanish racial purity. With the fall of the Third Reich and fascist Italy, the regime attempted to distance itself from its former allies. As part of this defascifying process, the fascist salute stopped being official on September of 1945. In 1947, the Spanish national squad returned to their former colors. The managerial role of the Falange would remain in the field of sports. Athletic was fairly successful during the 50s as well, winning their sixth league in 1956. However, by this point in time, Barcelona and Real Madrid were catching up in league titles. Athletic won another four Kings Cups in this decade as well. However, they would have a drought of titles for the remainder of the 60s and the final years of the Franco regime. In the late years of the regime, much like Barcelona, Athletic served as a catalyst for Basque regionalism and separatism. Athletic served as a vehicle for a variety of diverse identitarian transmissions, ranging from traditionalist Francoist ones to Basque nationalism and anti-Francoism. In the last decades of Francoism, peñas or fan groups for the club were created throughout all of Spain. The club had the image of a working-class team, and its policy of not paying exorbitant salaries gained the sympathy of many working-class peoples outside of Vizcaya. The cantera policy was regarded by many as the club dedicating its time and resources towards local youth rather than spending millionaire transactions on foreigners, like any other club in first division. This policy was defended across the board by fans, Francoists, secessionists, and non-secessionists. The main difference with this case study in regards to Barcelona was that you could find people all across the political spectrum identifying with the club. Unlike Barca, Athletic wasn't characterized for its anti-centralist view, nor did the club wager on democracy coming back to Spain. In fact, the directive positions for the club were controlled by Francoists until 1977. It wasn't until the presidency of Jesús María Duña Beitia, with the help of the PNV, the National Basque Party, that Athletic was finally fully rid of Francoists. The club, in a sense, found itself being used by a variety of ideologues. For example, during the 70s, magazines published by the club kept emphasizing the link between Vizcaya, the Basque region, and Spain. The Francoist ideal of regions being subservient to the state was still present. An editorial of the club magazine published an article stating, quote, Peace for our athletic, which belongs to all Bilbaínos, all Basques, and many others who from all provinces support us as if it pertained to them. The local Francoist authorities kept promoting the message tying Spanishness to Basqueness, using Athletic as an example. After winning the King's Cup in 1969 against Elche, 
The club organized an event with the local city hall, where players were received by over 100,000 fans. The municipal band played both Aires Vascos, Basque Airs, and the Alirón, a form of hurrah. It should be noted that the latter song makes several references to a larger idea of a unified Spain, and was the popular club anthem until 1983. Basque nationalists at the time also used the club to pursue their ideological goals. By the beginning of the 70s, many members close to the PNV party were part of the board of directors. Yet the reclaiming of Basque nationalist symbols took a bit longer in this region than in Catalonia. By the mid-60s, many fans sported icurriñas in San Mamés, yet these were still technically banned until 1977. The chistu, a Basque folkloric flute, became the instrument and symbol against the dictatorship. Many fans played the chistu as a form of protest against the regime. Even the players themselves played a role in using the club as a political vehicle. The legendary keeper for both Athletic and the national squad, José Ángel Iribar, convinced his squadmates to support black armbands during a match as a form of protest in October of 1975. This protest was in regards to the deaths of two ETA and FRAP members, who faced death by firing squad. This rebellious act was later explained away as a commemoration for the death of an ex-player and club director. Yet, everybody knew that this was a protest against the brutality of the regime. In 1976, Iribar once again convinced his team and Real Sociedad to enter the pitch with Anicurriña during a cup match. On the 18th of May of 1977, during a UEFA Cup final, Iribar entered the pitch with Anicurriña as fans screamed, Preso a Calera, free the prisoners. On the 8th of August of 1977, Months after the legalization of the Icurriña, the club president hoisted the flag in San Mamés as part of a ceremony where athletic players entered the field in unison with popular Basque music and danzaris, Basque folk dancers. The hoisting of the flag marked the end of Franco's chokehold on the club, freeing itself from the shackles of its fascist past. Nowadays, Athletic, the city, and the region itself express themselves freely in Basque, Spanish, or whatever other language comes to mind. The fact that the language itself was so close to extinction due to Franco's policies, yet has seen a resurgence ever since, is nothing short of a miracle. This region could be described as the grandfather of soccer in Spain, still competing in the top Spanish flight of football. As of the date of publication, Athletic is actually competing in another King's Cup final. Well, this, my friends, is the end of the trip. Hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you have anything to take away from today, remember, Remember that behind every kick of the ball lie the cries and dreams of those that wished to be free. Agur, adios, and see you soon. If you've made it this far, I would like to thank you for taking this ride with me. And if it isn't too much to ask, giving this podcast a five-star rating and sharing it with your friends. These episodes take a lot of research, reading, and time. While I would like to produce them more often, I, I really have to be careful that I don't misrepresent or misinform anyone on the subject. Anyways, you've been listening to Undertime, the story of First Division Soccer in Fascist Spain. <laughs>